0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralaleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So we are blessed with many children at home, many young children at home, and so one of the most common words in our home is the word, why? in the form of a question. Why? Why, Daddy? Why, Mommy? And sometimes answering those questions, we give a series of answers, almost like we're walking up the stairs of a ladder. Other times, we just go right to the heart of the answer. For example, they may ask, Daddy, why do we have to go to bed? And I might say, well, so that you can be fresh tomorrow. But, Daddy, why? Why do we have to go to sleep? So you can recharge. But, Daddy, why? So you don't kill Mommy and Daddy. That's why... (laughs) We need you to go to bed. Other times, rather than reasoning and working up the steps of the ladder, I just jump right to the top. On a Sunday afternoon, they may walk into the room and say, Daddy, why are you watching the Detroit Lions play football? And I just jump right to the top, because your father is a weak, gullible man. (laughs) That's why I'm doing this. And so this morning, we're going to try to jump right to the top. And on the screen, the guys will have Romans 5a. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, uh, please take it and turn to page 1120, 1120. And the title of today's sermon is Remembering the Ultimate Reason. And we want to remember why anything good has happened here, why anything good has happened in your life, or why you should have any reason to think anything good can happen remembering the ultimate reason, and this is Romans five eight, and that's the text we'll focus on, but having the pew Bible open will help give some context as well. So the first question, and if you have the bulletin, there'll be five questions, and we'll kind of work through those as I see them in the text this morning. So the first question, why are we here to celebrate? Why can we remember anything good? Why could we ever hope for anything good? And look in Romans 5.8 as we get the first answer, but God shows his love for us. If we shoot to the top of the ladder, why is there anything good ever? Because God loves. Praise God that God loves. Here in Romans 5 8, we're at the inflection point of the book in many ways. The first four chapters have given us first a thesis in chapter 1, 16, and 17. There's good news. God does something incredible. 1 18 through 320 gives us sort of the bad news, the assessment from God's perfect. I is that all of us are actually unrighteous, but then Romans three twenty-one through 26 may be the most important paragraph of the book. There we find out that God remains righteous while declaring unrighteous people righteous, but he remains righteous because he does so through his righteous son, whose account is given to the unrighteous through faith. And then to illustrate what faith looks like in chapter 4, Paul writes about Abraham, who trusted God's promises and believed in them. By the time we come to chapter 5, you maybe notice when our brother read in verse 1, it begins with the word, therefore. Anytime we have therefore in the Bible, it's really important. And therefore, so given the fact that God would declare unrighteous people righteous, what does that mean now? What does it mean going forward? What does it mean for your life today or tomorrow or for a church today or tomorrow? And that's what today's passage will focus on. And the answer it gives us will be surprising. Can we trust God only at the beginning, or can we trust God beyond the beginning? Can we trust God just at the start, or should we be able to trust God all the way to the finish? And this passage will tell us that we can trust God all the way to the finish, but the reason it gives is humbling. Essentially, it's this. The reason we can trust God all the way to the finish with tomorrow and the next day and the next is because who we were when God first loved us. And so we'll see here in Romans 5 humbling, wonderful truth of what makes God's initial love so remarkable. So we're already at number two on your handout. Why is it remarkable? The first foundational truth, why is there anything good? Because God loves. But what makes his love so remarkable, which is why we can trust it in the future, and look again at Romans 5.8, and look now at the middle phrase. God shows his love to us when? While we were still sinners. Sinners. And actually, the preceding verses flesh that out further so that we will be in awe of how gracious God's love is and so that we'll trust it in the future. So look back to verse 6, if you would, just up two verses in your copy of God's Word. The ESV, the English Standard Translation, it is often very good. That's why we use it, but sometimes it, it fails like any translation could, and I think it fails here in verse 6. They translate, while we were still weak. And if you'll forgive the pun, weak is far too weak of a word. All the other English translations get the Greek right. The NASB writes, still helpless. The NIV writes, powerless. The King James writes, without strength. The net, helpless. The Christian Standard Bible, helpless. It's very important that we get that word right. Do you know that God helps the helpless, not those who help themselves? So the good news here in Romans 5 is God's love to those who had no hope of it, no merit of it, no chance of earning it, no ability to extract it. And if God loved us when we had nothing, what should we be able to trust him with now? So verse 6, God loved us when we were helpless. But now it goes further. God loved us when we were ungodly. The two words There are the two letters, un, un, mean the opposite of what godliness is like. In Greek, you do that by adding an alpha to the beginning of the word. You negate the word. So whatever God is like morally, we are frankly not like that. So holy, just, loving, good, righteous, dependable, faithful, those aren't accurate descriptions of our perfect character. Furthermore, verses seven and eight tease out the fact that not only were we helpless, and ungodly, but we were sentenced to death. That's why in verse 6 Christ had to die for us, because we were sentenced to death. And then verse 7 says God's willingness to die for people like us is really unusual. Verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but that's not when God died for us. In our culture, especially in our arts, we we have lots of well-known fictional stories, sometimes even newsworthy, actual true stories of sacrificial heroism. People dive into mines to rescue trapped youth soccer teams. Mother die. Mothers give up their lives for their children. We have movies that make a lot of money about superheroes who will die for friends and citizens that they esteem. Christ's death is not like any of those. Christ's death is death for a certain type of people. Verse 6, people who are helpless. Verse 6, people who are ungodly. Verse 8, people who are sinners. Verse 10, people who are enemies. In other words, Jesus is a hero who sacrifices his life not for innocent bystanders, but for the villains. And we can be assured that God will love us still because he's loved us at our worst. We can be sure that God will have good purposes for our future because he has not set his love on our goodness, but he has set his love on our badness. But just bringing us to number three on our handout. And number three is a great time to recap number one and two. So look in verse eight again. Why do we have any hope? The first phrase, because God shows his love. That's why. When did He love us? What made His love so remarkable? He loved us when we were still sinners. What's the heart of what God did, which is why we can trust Him? And the verse culminates, Christ died for us. If you're new to reading the Bible, I want to give you something that will help you to read it with more joy in the future. Whenever you see a verse, begin with these two words, but God, you're in for some good news. Because when we find out who we are, oh, yeah, we kind of squirm. When we find out who God is, oh, yes, there's good news. God shows his love for us. Shows his love doesn't mean that he um, just did like a show and tell sort of thing. It, it wasn't just to do a feat of strength to show us something about him. We might have that In our culture, you can picture a college quarterback who sees a girl at the quad and thinks that she's really pretty and comes up to her and says to her, you know, I'm going to show my love for you by dedicating my championship trophies to you at the end of the year. Obviously, he's showing his love for himself in that feat of strength, not for her. The text here is not saying that God is showing us a feat of his strength. It's showing us not that he's loving people that are attractive and desirable, but that he's loving people who are Sinners. What he's doing is not to show a feat of strength. It's to actually accomplish a sentence that is to be meted out on such sinners. Sin is a difficult word to hear, especially if someone uses it seriously. It causes us to feel uncomfortable. It exposes something about us. I was reminded of this sort of humorously this week. I was picking up my kids from school and on the drive home, I was asking them about how school went, how everything went, and my son started to tell me about his math class. And he said, Daddy, i I, I is so good in math. I got a hundred percent. I says, man, that is so great. High five. He said, yeah, the teacher wrote an A on it. I said, man, that's great. I want to see it. And he said, well, the teacher said she can't show anybody because it was so good. You're not allowed to see it. (laughs) Not allowed to see it. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure how good it was then, but... Now, the Bible in Romans 1, 2, and 3 it tells us that actually the law does a similar purpose. The law is truth showing what we would otherwise want to remain hidden. It shines a light on that homework assignment, and you see it for what it really is. In fact, Romans 4, verse 15 says the law brings wrath because it shows us. The truth light reveals. It says the law actually increases transgression because it shows us who we are. Do you know what the law is? It it can be confusing. It's such a big term. Uh, Probably the most obvious way we think about the law is the law given at Mount Sinai to Moses. And we probably are familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? The first one is to have no other gods before God. The second is to not make a graven image, not to make God the way you want him to be. The third is to not take God's name in vain, to not misuse, misunderstand, or mistrust the character of God. The fourth is to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to respect God's rhythm for life. The fifth is to honor your father and mother. The sixth is to not kill. The seventh is to not commit adultery. The eighth is to not steal. The ninth is to not lie. And the tenth is to not want or covet what is not yours to want. Now those ten should be enough to humble us. And yet some people were able to take those ten and kind of redefine them and say, oh, I keep those. They were called Pharisees. When Jesus came and preached the Sermon on the Mount, he exposed how the Pharisees had made the law of God more manageable, more doable. And then he said, oh, you think you've never killed? Have you ever hated somebody? Oh, you think you've never committed adultery? Have you ever lusted after somebody? And by the time he got done in chapter 5, verse 48, he said, no, if you want to keep the law, you need to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You say, wait, the standard is perfection? No one can meet it exactly Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the what? Do you know the rest? The glory of God, God's perfection revealed. Now, you could be here this morning and said, oh, I got it. If the law shows me my sinfulness, then maybe I'll do what your son did. I'll just say that nobody can see my homework. But actually, even if you don't have the law, there's something else that the law does. Romans 2 says if you don't have the law of God written, the law of God's written on your heart so you'll have moments in your own life, even if you're trying to avoid the written law, where it'll come crashing home to you that something is not perfect. You ever had these moments? Maybe you see something going on in your grandchild, and she's really short-tempered and impatient, and you're like, where did she get that from? And then it clicks. Or have you ever had that benefit of hindsight where you kind of pull out some old pictures of who you used to be, and if you're honest, you're like, "Ah, oh, I was a pretty harsh person then. Or has anyone ever given you a hard truth that you didn't want to hear, but but they were right? They sit down with you. They say, you know, have you noticed that when people are talking, you tend to interrupt them and speak over them? And, and then, you know, you're not sure you can hear that out. Have you ever sensed immense frustration at this obvious flaw someone else has that drives you mad until you realize the reason you hate that flaw so much is because it's so characteristic of yourself? Romans goes even more to the heart because it tells us in chapter 3, one of the things that gets revealed about us is that there's no fear of God in our eyes. Or by chapter 11, we read, whatever is not of faith is sin. That means we could even pull honesty and integrity, try to do those in our own strength without realizing our need for God. Now, when people hear the law, when it exposes who we really are, there's two common reactions that are the wrong one. We we can pretend. We can say, no, 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 no. I really am fine. There's nothing. I have no flaws. I'm perfect. There's nothing for me to apologize for. Or we can prance. You got me. I'm guilty. But you know what? Who cares? That's who I am at my core. But rather than bucking against what the law reveals, we should do what the law's intention is. We should look at the person who fulfills it. That's why Romans 5, 8 says, Christ died for us. This morning, rather than being angered about the sin that the law exposes, be awed that Jesus, the only sinless one, would bear the punishment of sinners. I'm a grammar geek, and so let me pause on these four words. Christ died for us, and let's marvel at them and what they mean, especially the preposition for its implications. For means First in the place of, something in the place of. My parents were down here for a couple of weeks and we're from the north and we were out at a restaurant and we were looking at the menu. And on the side, my dad pulled it up to me and he pointed to it and he said, son, what are hush puppies? <laughs> I was like, oh man, you're in for it. <laughs> because if you start on that train, you know, Steph got me on there and I haven't gotten off. So, So hush puppies are great. I mean, I know you all know what they are. So, hush puppies, and then as soon as you see that in the menu, you're like, well, what's the side with my thing? Broccoli? You know, in the place of that, can you give me hush puppies? In the place of. So, for can mean in the place of. That's what it means here in verse 8. Christ died in the place of sinners. Have you ever thought about that? That means that sinners. Have a condemnation that we all deserve, that's punitive, that the Bible calls death, and yet in an amazing mo- moment of grace, God switches out the sinners and in their place puts his own son. All right, for doesn't only mean in the place of, the preposition for also means because of. So it means because of. This had to happen. There's a reason this had to happen. First Corinthians 15, 53 says it this way: Christ died for, because of, our sins, according to the scriptures. So Christ died in our place, but He also died because of us, because we have created the problem that requires justice. That's actually why He dies. So the phrase Christ died means Christ took our condemnation. You might be confused. You might be thinking death How is death the condemnation? Everybody dies. I don't understand. Why would Jesus die? How is death the thing that fulfills righteous justice? I'm a pastor, and so I've I've preached many funerals, and I've led many funerals. And sometimes, unfortunately, on the bulletin at a funeral people will take a phrase of Scripture that they think is poetic, not understanding because they don't realize, unfortunately, that it isn't meant to be poetic, but punitive. And that's the phrase from Genesis 3 that says this, for out of dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. And so, some people, because they aren't familiar with what is going on in the Bible, they think, well, what a beautiful poetic description of the circle of life. But you should remember that in the Garden of Eden, nobody was ever intended to die. We only die because we've rejected God. And so that's why in chapter three, those words are a quotation of God sharing the horrible, tragic news to Adam and Eve that they will be separated from him. So the word death actually means separate. That's why on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the cross, he tastes death. He tastes separation. He doesn't merely taste it, though. He dies our death. So, the last way we should understand the word for is for our good, for our salvation. Christ dies not only to do something that we deserved, but he dies to take it so that he can give us something we don't deserve, life. So when we think about the cross, we need to think about it this way, from this plane and this plane. When I see the cross, I should think, I caused it. My sin put Jesus there. But when I see the cross, I should also think, God ordained it. His love took Jesus there. At the cross, God shows his love for me at my worst. So looking at your handout again, number one, why are we here? Why is there anything good we could ever expect or hope? Because God loves. What makes his love remarkable? When he loved us, when we were sinners, what's the heart of our hope? What did God do for us through his son Jesus Christ died for us? But now, finally getting to the question directly, what will our future be? What can we look forward to? In verses 9 through 11 are what give us the purpose that flows out of Christ's death for us. It means that we will be saved, reconciled, and rejoicing. And you'll notice some words that are repeated in verse 9 through 11. Much more, much more, much more. If what was against us was bad, God's mercy is much more. If our sentence was bad, God's grace is much more. If our fears were great, God's goodness is much more. Look in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. I don't want us to lose the much more theme. It's about God's much greater grace even than our great sin. But the word wrath could be a hard one for you to hear this morning, and I want to take just a minute to make sure we understand the word wrath and don't be afraid of its biblical beauty. Wrath, God's wrath is not like human wrath. The Bible warns us as humans to not give in to wrath and sinful anger because we as humans, when we're wrathful, it's vindictive, it's personal, it's vengeance, and it's only based on limited knowledge. We can never even fully know somebody else's motives or intentions. Conversely, God is holy, righteous, loving, and good. And even when he meets out justice, it's accurate, perfect, and right. As creator, God's wrath is never capricious, it's never fickle, it's never self-indulgent or irritable like human wrath is. It's simply the justice that all of us long for. Haven't you ever thought, things aren't what they ought to be? Who will make that just? That's what wrath does. Now, what's difficult for us to hear, though, is if we're thinking, what about all this injustice in the world? If we're honest, that would have to also include us, and so God's righteous wrath against sin would have to also fall on us. Chapter 118 says, the righteous wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 323, I already quoted, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we do stand in a condition in which God's righteous justice should fall against us. Now, did you know in our country's history, that was once well known? In the 1700s, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching, he preached in a monotone, very dispassionate demeanor, but he preached the sermon, now famous, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And by reminding people that God does have justice, and that justice does deserve to fall on us, God revived the nation. We've come a really long way, because in the 1900s, instead of Jonathan Edwards, we had Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen telling us that we should just believe in the power of positive thinking. Rather than a God who rightly sees our sin and is going to do something about that, instead we're told that we should not ever feel any shame or any guilt. But Reinhold Niebuhr warned us well. He said, if we have a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, then we have a Christ without a cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. We should rightly love the fatherhood of God and the love of God. But if we throw away the righteous, holy justice of God, then we don't have a Christ who came into the world to do what this passage says he came into the world to do. He came to save sinners. Now, that's great news because you and I are sinners. So Jesus came for us. One more quote. Where the idea of wrath is ignored, there will also be no understanding of the central conception of the gospel. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Have you ever sung amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Charles Wesley put it well also, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So look at wrath as a reminder of the much more grace of God. Now look in verse 10. If while we were enemies, if we were when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If the cross shows us That God loves us enough to forgive us. How much more should the resurrection show us that God loves us all the way into eternity? What he started, he'll continue. Verse 11 is even more beautiful. Much more, or more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation means people that were once estranged are now family, God's grace, then, is personal. This means that God's grace is much more than commuting the sentence of a criminal. Instead, God's grace is like a blissful marriage. It's a relationship that lasts and sustains. It's not just a declaration of innocence. As glorious as that is, it's something ongoing. It's being exhaustively known, even at our worst, yet eternally loved. Well, who can have such joys? That's number five on your bulletin, the final question, who can enjoy such joys as the ones we read in this passage? And Romans tells us an answer that's staggering. Those who simply believe. Those who rest. Those who rely. Those who trust. Those who accept what Jesus did in their place. Not those who earn. Not those who try to have a second start. Not those who could try to work their way up. No, those who see what Jesus did as sufficient and trust in him alone. Now, what good is that for you as a Christian if you're like, well, I already believe that, but don't you get it? If God has loved you at your worst, can't we trust him to bring about what's best? If God has loved us at our worst beginning, surely we can trust him beyond the beginning to do all that we stand in need of. A few years ago, I couldn't sleep, and so I read the short story, The Capital of the World. It was written by Ernest Hemingway in 1936. The original titled, much better, The Horns of the Bull. It was a great read. It was so well written, I couldn't put it to sleep before, or could have put it down before I fell asleep. And so when I finished it, I noticed, actually this week, that that story has a lot of similarities to our passage, though, in all of the wrong ways. Ernest Hemingway actually begins the story with this paragraph. Madrid is full of boys named Paco, and there's a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and put an advertisement in the local newspaper that said this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. And 800 men answered the (laughs) the advertisement. (laughs) But then Hemingway says this, but this Paco who waited on the table at the pension Luacra like a hotel there, had no father to forgive him nor anything for the father to forgive. So Hemingway presents a character with this principle in mind. Yes, some people need forgiveness like the really bad people, but not all of us do. Some of us are really good, and we don't need to be forgiven, and we don't need to be reconciled. We're fine on our own. So Hemingway creates a character that doesn't need reconciliation, doesn't need a father, doesn't need forgiveness. And through that fundamental flaw, he creates a character who attempts to find his value and his identity through his dreams of which he hopes to achieve. And I'm sorry to spoil another literary classic for you <laughs> this morning, but let me tell you the tragic ending of Paco. As he works there as a waiter, he dreams that he will one day be a matador of Madrid that will have glory and infamy and immortality through being a person who evades bulls at a time and place where that was a big deal. It'd be like an NFL quarterback today. Him and his partner, his friend Enrique, decide to pantomime this out in the restaurant because Paco is so confident in his ability, and so Enrique ties two knives to the bottom of a chairs, legs, and then they act it out and they act it out and Paco, overly confident in his ability, slips and is impaled and bleeds out. It's a shocking and tragic ending that cements the fundamental error that Paco had. His endearing outlook sees everything as romantic, nearly idealistic. He's full of hope, even in a world of world-weary, disillusioned people. But by the end of the tragedy, Paco's life is suddenly over. The author, Ernest Hemingway, wrote stories that, if you're familiar with Hemingway, his stories were often preoccupied with death. In his writing, he described death as the great destroyer, and yet Hemingway tragically missed who destroys death. In this story, he made Paco, who longed for immortality, but he couldn't achieve it because he was condemned to death, and yet in real life, Hemingway would not receive the life that's held out to him because he didn't realize his need and how simply it's achieved through faith. Romans 6.23 puts this all in a sentence. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning, have you received the eternal life through simple faith in Jesus? If you have, do you realize that our hope is founded on the rock, that God loved us at our worst? Surely then we can trust him to work out what's best in our future. Emmanuel, if God loved us when we had nothing and then he brought something at 2100 Noble Road 72 years ago, can we not trust him to continue the work that he's begun. Let's look to him now in prayer. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you have shown your love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, God, that you have not set your love on us because we're so lovely or wonderful or amazing. You have set your love on us because you are so loving And wonderful and gracious. Lord, it can be a hard but necessary truth to realize that we are not perfect. We are not glorious. We are sinners. And yet, that truth is followed up quickly by much more good news. Thank you for the much more grace, God, that tells us that not only will you declare us righteous, but you will reconcile us to yourself through faith. And if you loved us at our worst, surely we can trust that you will love us tomorrow and through eternity. Lord, continue to work out your grace here in Raleigh. May you continue to work it out through our church. May you continue to work it out in our lives. May we know that even suffering is working to a far greater incomparable glory to come. And Lord, I pray if anyone this morning has come in maybe idealistic like Paco or cynical like Hemingway, may they realize that there is free salvation for anyone who simply trusts in Jesus. So may they not leave estranged, but may they leave justified, saved, reconciled, and rejoice in. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraley.com. That's E B C R A L E I G H dot com.